Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and on today's episode, we have a most talented woman. She is a soprano. She has done singing in opera and experimental music, and she has played in the best venues in the country. I mean places like Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. She has worked with some of the best and most inventive composers I can think of. She is on the phone with us today. Her name is Bethany Beardsley. Miss Beardsley, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today and spending your time talking about your career. It really means a lot to us. I want to start by mentioning that you are not a Hudson Valley resident from the start. You're from Lansing, Michigan. Well, actually, my childhood was in Lansing, Michigan. But most of my career was when I entered Juilliard, and uh, I began singing professionally from then on. Where were you born? I was born in Lansing. And lived in East Lansing, which is uh, a college town. That's where MSU is. And in fact, they gave me an honorary degree <laughs> for what I had done. I know. I'm aware of that. You, yes. you, you've gotten uh, many of those degrees over time. We're going to talk about them as well. Well, what happened was I got a scholarship to Juilliard. And that was put me in New York City. And it was in the 50s. And a lot was going on with serious music. Uh, Schoenberg was very hot because he had the new 12-tone technique. So a lot of the young American composers and Europeans as well were writing in this style. And it was very difficult for most singers unless you really wanted to get involved. And I did. And so I premiered a lot of new music during the 50s and 60s, working with the composers of the day. And it gave me an unusual career, not like most sopranos, but it was wonderful. I happened to have been blessed with a very good natural singing voice and an excellent ear, and that's what you needed. And when did you come to the Hudson Valley, and for what reason did you come here? My sons. Both of them went to Bard College. Uh So I came up to, uh, we lived in Princeton, and then when they became of college, the college that they wanted to go to was Bard, and that was wonderful in a way. Botstein, of course, is a music fanatic and has done so much for music in this community. He cannot be praised enough. I quite agree. I know your sons. I know Baird, and I know Chris, and I've worked at the Trees Studio, which was Baird's studio, and Project North, which was Chris's. When was the first time you realized that you could sing? How old were you? I think it was when I was, um, oh, maybe 12. (laughs) I sang in church. A lot of people that go into singing... They come from a church where they've sung in the choir or even in the uh, the children's choir. Yes, I've heard that. Uh, even our producer, Josie Grant, is a singer, and she grew up singing in church. So that's absolutely true. Yes. Your stage name was always Bethany Beardsley, but that's not your real name, right? Uh, am I allowed to say your real name? That was my stage name. My real name is Bethany Wynnum. Yeah. So where did Beardsley come from? What's the origin of that name? That was my father's name. That was your dad's name. And, uh, yes. 
And I always use that for my stage name. I never, you know, like when they go to Hollywood, they change their names. But I never did that. And most people that are in uh, serious music use their real names. Well, you were married two times. Your first husband, Jacques Minot, was, you know, a fairly well-known composer in his own right. And then later on, you married Gottfried Wynnum, another composer. Is it safe to say that you were attracted to composers? (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Well, that's a good thing for a singer to be, right? It's like a hand in a glove, you know. You need need a composer, you need a singer. I know. Absolutely. Your late husband, Gottfried Wynnum, eventually he taught at Princeton, but when he was a student, he had a teacher who had a big impact on your career personally, a guy by the name of Milton Babbitt. Correct. Now, Milton, very talented man himself, he was a professor, he was a mathematician, he did a little bit of everything. I think he started out on violin and then quickly became a clarinet and saxophone player. Yes, in fact, we, we, we'll be talking about a few of your pieces over the duration of the interview. But Milton, he was a family friend as well, right? Him and his wife, Sylvia, they, they were friends of oh, yours. Oh, yes, very good friends. Would you say that Milton Babbitt was the first electronic or computerized composer, or was it his engineer? No, he, worked with, he worked with the RCA synthesizer. It was my husband who was involved in computer music. And we're talking about the 60s, right at the the beginning of uh, composers who were using the computer. It was electronic music, early electronic music. Now electronic music has, you know, kind of a different bent to it. But he was one of those early guys that were using synthesizers before anyone else was. And the story of the RCA synthesizer was that there were several that worked with it. Vladimir Yusuchevsky, Mario Davidovsky, Pearl Smiley, and of course Milton. And what happened was the studio was down on 125th Street in New York. And one night, some vandals got in and they wrecked the synthesizer. And that was the end of the machine and, and it was terrible never could be restored. Even They worked on it, but it never came back. Well, this brings us to a piece that was probably composed on that synthesizer or one like it. I'm talking about Vision and Prayer, 1961. Yes, on a wonderful poem by Dylan Thomas. This is an extraordinary piece. One of the extraordinary things about it is that it was commissioned specifically for you. What, what can you tell us about that? and prayer is that it has spoken voice as well as singing voice and you will have a verse of the poetry and then you'll get an interval of the electronic music alone and then another sung verse of the poetry with electronic there's electronic accompaniment throughout the whole piece yeah 
Well, I want our listeners to get an idea, get a sense of what this extraordinary music sounds like. Would you mind if we played a little piece of it? Okay, we can't play the whole thing because it's it's quite long, but I'd like to play a little excerpt, and then we'll discuss it a little more. I have some more questions about it. Vision and Prayer, it's written by the great Milton Babbitt, and of course on vocals, Bethany Beardsley. Listen to this. Of his kiss, 
Do you remember the first time you heard that piece, and what was your reaction to hearing it? Well, it gave me an entirely different sense of rhythm. When you're working with human beings, rhythm can be very within a very variation. But when you're working with an electronic piece, the rhythm is very, very tight. It's, it just is unchangeable. So you feel space. You don't feel a beat. You feel space, mm. and you work within the... You have a score that you're working with, of course, but you feel differently about rhythm. There's no beat, really. There's this score that never changes, and you match your voice to what's in the score and try to match it up to the accompaniment. Yeah, and you did something that you don't normally like to do, you used a click track to record these vocals, right? Well, I was so astounded by the piece that Milton said, look, we'll make a click track first. And I did use that at first. But then I quickly said, Milton, this gets in the way. Leave me alone and I'll figure it out. And as soon as I got used to hearing it many times, I was able to fit my voice right into it properly. So he didn't record your vocal a cappella and then paste no. these sounds around. You actually had to sing to this. Yes. That's amazing. I, yes. I, I mean, that. how long did that take? Well, I, oh golly, it was so long ago. I would say about a month that I wow. worked on Vision and Prayer. But there were other pieces that I was working on at the same time. What was the but, public's yeah. reaction uh-huh. to this piece? Well, it's interesting because the first time it was performed was at, of all things, a conference of musicologists. If you know what musicologists are, sure, they are music historians. And for them to hear a piece that was absolutely, completely new, nothing that they were used to, it must have astounded them. It was so innovative for its time. I mean, it reminds me of jazz. It reminds me of classical. I can't really put my finger on it. What genre would you say that is? Well, you know, Milton, his first love is jazz. He loved jazz. So his music reflects that also. Yeah. In the rhythmic structure, yes. And you mentioned you perform this live. You've performed this live many times. Um, Yes, I did. I saw an interview with Milton Babbitt not that long ago, and he mentioned every time you performed Vision and Prayer, you used sheet music. But later on, when you did Philomel, another big piece of yours, you memorized it. What's the difference, and and why did you use sheet music for one and memorize the other? They were two different pieces, really. Philomel was not difficult to memorize. I don't know why. But it was a sort of semi-staged piece as well. And so I didn't want to do it with score because it would lose the dramatic effect. Is Philomel the piece that you're probably best known for? Yes. You ever listen to it? Also very well known for other pieces. But that one really stands out, doesn't it? Well, I guess so. But I really, before I premiered Philomel, I was also doing some wonderful music of Berg and Schoenberg and Webern. I premiered a lot of the music of Webern, the uh, Opus 
you worked on a lot of composer stuff. I mean, I know you've done some work on Brahms and Schubert and Schumann and, and composers like that, that, right? Of course, of course. Leader was always, whenever I would give a recital, half of it was contemporary music, the music of today, the, the most up-to-date pieces, and the classical leader, you know, and uh, French music and lots of different songs that were were the basic song literature of, of, of a recitalist. Well, I know you sang in an opera, uh, Beatrice and Benedict. Uh, speaking of French composers, that was uh, Berlioz, right? That was Hector Berlioz. Yes. I love Berlioz music. Wonderful composer. He also wrote a wonderful cycle of orchestral songs, Les Nuits d'été, which I love singing. You know, Milton Babbitt, he praises you for your ear and your rhythmic sense he said that you could pick out just about anything. He was very impressed. I, it led me to wonder whether you had perfect pitch or not. No, I had relative pitch. Relative pitch. But I like having relative pitch. If you sing with absolute pitch, you can't tune the music as well. It's like, well, it's the difference between playing a flute, which has a, a steady pitch, and a violin, which can tune. It can raise and lower the pitch, minuscule, you know, just a tiny, tiny bit to emphasize a harmonic change in music. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. You certainly are. Tuning is a wonderful thing. And the thing about the singing voice is that we can tune without reattacking. You know, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, and we have vocal cords. I mean, they're strings, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I heard that it was kind of a difficult thing for some people who have perfect pitch because something even slightly out of tune can be grating on their ears. I've always heard that. Yes. Perfect pitch means that for you to stay a little bit sharp or a little bit flat to tune with the harmony that's underneath you, you can't do it. Yeah. You always are going to sing your pitch the way it is. But in music, there's more than just singing the pitches. There's singing within the harmonic line that is going. I understand. You have worked with so many wonderful composers. One that really stands out to me is the great Gunther Schuller. Yes, Gunther was a wonderful musician composer and he was a conductor and a, a publisher and a historian he he did a lot of stuff also a violin player that moved to what i think french horn and flute later on something like that he was a french horn player basically at the beginning in the met orchestra and i remember he used to tell me very funny stories about the various conductors he worked with at the met <laughs> one was fritz reiner reiner had this very small beat and this merciless eye. And if you were, made a mistake, <laughs> we'll be gone. <laughs> he was someone that was not easy to follow because he gave a tiny beat. Did you ever work at the Met yourself? No. I never sang in the big house. When I did opera, it was usually in a much smaller venue. But some impressive venues. You played at Carnegie Hall, so I know you must have practiced because that's how you get there, right? When I sang at Carnegie Hall, it was with the orchestra, but it was not an opera role. Usually it was uh, a new piece, 
or a piece that I knew. I sang with various orchestras quite a bit. I sang in Minneapolis when Skowiczewski was conductor, and the Buffalo Orchestra with Lucas Foss I appeared many times, and with Munch in Tanglewood, and with Michael Tilson Thomas, and various conductors, Cavallo and uh, Boulez. Yes, lots of big, lots of big names. And I love Tanglewood as well. I mean, that's yeah. a great venue for classical music. It's one of my favorite places of all time to go see a show. And right there in the Berkshires, it's absolutely beautiful. I know. I hope they have a season this year. I think they are. I think they are, too. I saw that online recently, and I was surprised and pleasantly surprised. The COVID year was just terrible. I'm hoping that it's all over now and that all of the arts will be able to resume their concerts. I sure hope so. It has been, it's been a long, the unpleasant ballet, experience. The ballet has a rough time. You know, you've played at Lincoln Center also quite a bit. One show that kind of stands out to me doing some research is this Christmas concert that they put on in your honor. I believe you played a couple of uh, numbers and they made a recording of it. What was that show all about and when was that? Probably was. Well, no one can blame you for not remembering it. You've done so much, and some of it was quite a while ago. I mean, some of these pieces yeah. go back to the early 60s. But, you know, we were speaking about, before we started taping the show, we were speaking about some of the honorary doctorate degrees that you've gotten and where you've gotten them from, and some of these places are very impressive. I mean, you got one from Princeton. You got one from Juilliard. You got one from Michigan University, one from Michigan State. It must have been a great honor to, to receive these. It was. One thing about living with a composer, you gain so much. When I was singing, I was married to Godfrey Wynnum, and we lived in Princeton. So I was constantly working with many of the composers in the department, especially Milton. They had a very active recital of their own music, the composers. And I sang the music of Ed Cohn, Claudius Peace, Milton, of course, and Jim Randall. They were the composers that were on the faculty at that time. You know, you had such an amazing instrument, and the voice is so different than other instruments. As you know, it's part of your body. Over the years, it wears down and things like that. But to sing the type of difficult music that you sang, you most likely had to really baby your voice. I don't know what you did over the years, what techniques you employed to keep it healthy. How did you keep your voice healthy all that time? Well, singing new music is the same as singing an opera role. It's just the learning process takes a bit longer. The only thing that will hurt a singer's voice is longevity. There comes a day when you just have to retire. And the other thing is bellowing. In other words, forcing the instrument to go beyond its capability. That will wreck a voice. Yeah. You know, I sang until I was about, oh, 
65, I think. And a lot of the music that I sang did never, I mean, I worked on it like I would work on a piece of Schubert or Mozart. I always thought of it that way. You know, toward the end of your career, the time period that you're speaking of, you were working with Richard D. Good at the time, I believe, great pianist. How long did you work with him? I worked with Richard for about five years, and that was a fun period because I was at, I was getting towards the end of my career, and I wanted to stop singing new music so much and concentrate on doing recitals of the classics. And so Richard and I did a lot of recitals just leader. We did it the, the style of uh, Schnabel, Arthur Schnabel and his wife, Teresa Bear Schnabel. And what we would do is I would do a group of songs and then Richard would play a group of piano pieces or one big piece and then I would do more songs. Did Richard tell you at one point that your instrument was starting to wear down and, and maybe you weren't able to sing this music the way you once did? Was it him that said that to you? No. I think he said one day that I was flatting, but I corrected it. No, the thing that made me stop singing was the energy that it takes. I just got to the point where I was really hoping that I had the energy to go out on stage and do a full recital. In a way, it's much more demanding than seeing an opera role because with a singer, you can go on and off stage in a role, but once you start a recital, that's it. You're the, the only person on the stage with your pianist, and you're just the whole show. You are it. I saw an opera one time at the Met. It was La Traviata, and I noticed that they were laying on the floor, singing up to the ceiling. They were standing on the back of the couch, and I thought, this is a difficult, demanding, physically demanding job to sing an opera. Uh, oh, yes. You know, I mean. Oh, yes. They are the great vocal athletes. No doubt, no doubt. Yes. Was it difficult for you to have to stop, or were you ready? You're never ready. Yes, it was difficult to stop. I missed it terribly when I announced that this was the last time I would be singing. And I did a recital in in New York and, and announced my retirement. And I think I had two more concerts after that, and I stopped. That was out, not in New York, but my official announcement of my retirement was in the city. And that was that? Yes. You know, I'd love to talk to you about this new book. It's called I Sang the Unsingable, and you sure did. These are your memoirs. Yes. They've just been released, right? They were released in 2017, I believe. Okay. Who's the publisher? Boydell and Brewer. Boydell and Brewer. Yeah, you could get it on Amazon. Oh, good. I urge everyone to go out. This is now music history. Go out and learn something. Get that book. I want to read it myself. Before we go, I'd like to play one more piece. I want everybody to hear this. It's such an amazing piece of music. I'm talking, of course, about Philomel. This was composed by Milton Babbitt and, of course, Bethany Beardsley on vocals. Listen. Then all became 
Wow, that is quite a piece. I love that five-measure note you hold out at the end. That's really something. What a piece. Thank you. It's been so great having you on the show. I hope I've given you all the answers that you wanted. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. I really do appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Josie Grant. As always, please click subscribe. Follow us, people. Follow us. Follow, follow, follow. And come back again. I'm sure we'll have another talented Hudson Valley artist for you. We'll see you then.